welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today, we'll talk about the Iliad by Homer. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. This is the second of two consecutive shows on the Iliad. Two shows, two guests, and two ways of looking at this epic poem. Our guest today is Robin Lane Fox, an emeritus professor at New College, Oxford. He's the author of many books, including The Classical World, An Epic History from Homer to Hadrian, and The Invention of Medicine from Homer to Hippocrates. His new book is Homer and His Iliad, just out from basic books. He joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Robin, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. Why is the Iliad by Homer a great book? <laughs> so many reasons. Because it covers the dramas of war and loss, love, revenge. It's poetically superb in its construction, uh, the varying pace it contrives the speeches, the characters, the comparisons running through the book with what is to us the natural world. But I single out a quality mentioned in passing by the great critic C.S. Lewis, who understood Homer. People don't remember that. Lewis praised it for its unwearying splendor and its ruthless poignancy. Now, he didn't elaborate, but I think I see what he meant. The unwearing splendor is, as many people know, uh, the items in the poem have traditional epithets. The dawn um, in saffron robes, uh, rosy-fingered dawn, honey-sweet wine, and so on. All these epithets show the object at its best. They never have acid wine that has gone off. They never have a dark morning that never dawns. The world is at its brightest and best in the traditional phrasing. But what happens is irreversibly poignant in that the heroes are fighting for their lives, for the safety of their city and much else in front of the plains and the city of Troy. Now, we know through our access to the gods in heaven, whom Homer shares with us, he gives the gods words and plans. And we know in advance what the gods are intending or the terrible deceptions to which the gods can indulge on earth. We then turn to the mortal heroes. We see them plowing on bravely, trying to do their best, taking decisions which we know, though they don't, are going to turn out to be mistaken. That is the, the ruthless poignancy of irony, of Homeric irony. Now, many people listening will be familiar with the phrase tragic irony, um, of course, endemic in Greek tragedy. But the Greek tragedians get it from Homer. And of his two, probably the same poem, two poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's the Iliad that has the really hard irony where heroes realize too late their doom has come, that they have been mistaken in what they're trying to do, and so on. Now, you may listen and think, this is just a poetic trick to keep us uh, engaged with the plot. That is not so. It is a deeply felt view by the poet of the relationship between the world of the gods and the world of men. And it's one that even us who don't, I think, believe anymore in those Olympian gods can transfer to our own lives. Just think a moment how often or 
if ever, I hope, some of you have thought, ah, now I realize. All that time I was deluded, we might say, I was wrong, I didn't see what was really going on. And that is a terrible moment, poignant realization. It runs through the Iliad so powerfully, not just about mistakes about whether your husband or wife was a decent person. It can it affects your family, their survival, your life, the ultimate things in the world. And the gods know, but you don't. This is the root of the Iliad's extraordinary power and hardness. And it traces it through a movement of emotions, from anger, through love and loss, through revenge, and then heartbreakingly in the final book, through pity, shared pity, uniting the leaders on either side. Well, this is is a harrowing human range. All these emotions are still close to us. And um, on top of that, it's the most unforgettable, beautiful verse. That's my answer. There's much else I could say. We're going to talk about all that and many other things. We're going to talk about this epic poem and its enigmatic author, what we know and what we can know about him, best way to understand him and his work. Robin, take us into the world of Homer. This is the subject of your new book, Homer and his Iliad. Take us into the world of Homer, the author's world. What was the historical and cultural context out of which this poem and poet emerged? I begin by saying, if we knew for sure, I wouldn't have to write the book. (laughs) There are many theories advanced. I have one that I consider most probable, of course. And for me, Homer, and for some scholars now, not all, Homer was composing in the 8th century BC, I think a little earlier than some, I'd say about 740 to 730. The second poem, the Odyssey, is aware of the Iliad. The Iliad is not aware of the Odyssey. The Iliad came first. And at that time, uh, writing was not a widespread skill. Every scholar would agree that as a poet, Homer is what we call orally derived. He derives from centuries of oral poetry in the sense of poetry composed without any writing at all in performance. And elements in the diction, the phraseology he uses, I think, really establish this. I'm one of those who believe that Homer did not read or write. The alphabet is just coming in about, we think at the moment, 780 BC, perhaps. It's been around for about 30 or 40 years. But Homer has been practicing, I think, as an oral poet. And I'd argue from analogy that this can start very young in people's lives, like playing music now, playing piano, for instance. You can begin age four or five, we know. And he was a master of moving traditional poetic phrases around. We can also say, with pretty much certainty, that um, the Iliad is composed in full awareness of the west coast of the Aegean shore of Turkey and the adjoining islands. There are local geographic observations to us that are so exact. I also argue, as one or two have, but not as many as should, I think, that Homer himself had been up to what he thought was the site of ancient Troy, but he took in the lie of the land. It's the interrelationship of places around Troy that's so striking. So we get a picture of a Homer who I think couldn't read or write, practiced oral composition, rehearsal, 
performance from a very, very early age as heir to a great teachers whose poems we haven't got and who takes the decision to write one long epic. And he's doing this in a pre-existing poetic vocabulary. This is something I think people need to be aware when they read translations. Several of the modern ones have made a deliberate, but I think rather difficult choice to write in a style that's fluent and easy for present audiences to follow, as if it's everyday language. Homer never struck his audience as writing in that way. The poetic vocabulary we know is quite remote and special for them. It was never spoken. It's a special poetic form of language. And I think translators are best when they try to respect that. Um, so we have a Greek active in, say, the mid-8th century BC on the turn of the rise of um, alphabetic literate society who didn't write himself. I would side with those who in the past have argued that he dictated to somebody who could write. He was active in the west coast of Asia Minor. He went up to Troy and so on. Now, if I knew all this, that would be remarkable. I'm pretty sure of it. But there is probabilities. Some people say Homer was not a single person, not a single poet, but a group of people, a committee, a collective. What do you think? This is a view I find actually almost untenable. They face many questions. Here's one. The Odyssey is aware of the Iliad. The Iliad, as I've said, shows no awareness of the Odyssey. If they were both circulating in a form that was slowly um, coming to fruition over hundreds of years with different poets, the Iliad surely would have some interrelationship itself with the Odyssey. It's a one-way process, and the obvious answer is the Iliad existed as one text version taken down in dictation, and the poet of the Odyssey knew it. Um, the poet of the Iliad, or the poets of the Iliad, never knew the Odyssey. There are many, many other arguments you could mount. They'll never persuade everybody. But I hope that I and one or two others before me will make some scholars think again. Are you suggesting that the Homer of the Iliad was a different person from the Homer of the Odyssey? Ah, uh, well, that is a minefield. I don't think so, no. I think that um, he composed the Odyssey later in his life. Uh, some people are more impressed than I am by the sharp differences we can't know. Um, we can't know. The, uh, I, I think it's easier to believe there was only two, a genius once in the world rather than to think there were two geniuses so close together. One thing we sometimes hear about Homer, a theory, is that he was blind. Where does that idea come from and what do you think? Uh, very good question. It derives from um, the poet of a Homeric hymn who implies that he is the blind poet who's come from Chios, an obvious reference to what people's ideas of Homer, and it's of no authority at all. And secondly, one of the singers described in the Odyssey is himself blind, but has been given the gifts of song as a compensation. I don't think Homer was blind at all. Uh, there's incredible sharp eye and observation, as I explained, in some of his comparisons with very minute details of the natural world that are particular, they're not traditional ones, particular, I think, to him. One point needs emphasizing, that if you think Homer was blind, you cannot also hold, as some people try to, that he wrote the poem. He can't have done. He had to have dictated it to someone. 
he couldn't see to read, he couldn't see to write. No, I think the uh, blind Homer is um, a deduction from other poets in early Greek tradition. I, I'm not alone in that. I think that would be a general view now. This is fascinating about Homer, but how important is it to know about Homer the man and this context to understand the Iliad? Does it improve our reading of the poem? Uh, that's obviously a fascinating question. Look, in my more abstract moments, I'd say, for instance, I would love to meet Mrs. Homer. Think of it, if Homer had a wife, perhaps he didn't. I may have had three, um, one after another. Um, I would love to talk to her and ask what she, her life had been like, but we can't, we don't know. Those personal uh, items are fascinating to think about. I one point show that Homer really had a sharp eye for plants. Wonder if he had a garden. Um, why not? He might have done. Not just because I do. Um, I think it's hints in the poem. But what I think is important is not so much the biography and a sense of Homer himself, but to realize that one voice runs through the poem, structuring it on the whole and interconnecting it. And here I do differ from other schools of Homeric interpretation, the famous one, brilliantly sustained to this day in, in, in Harvard, sees the Homeric poems evolving orally with a whole sequence of bars until eventually they become a final script. There is uh, enough evidence on a bit-by-bit bit revelations of what is going to happen running through the poem. Also observed by an American scholar, Jenny Strauss-Clay, quite recently, the constant point of view is from the Greek camp looking outwards on the battlefield, a, su a sustained perspective. Would a whole range of poets have somehow absorbed this implicit point of view and perpetuated it? And I think, I would argue, I hope very strongly, that Homer is aware of the interrelationship, at least, of real points in the landscape around Troy and sustains them throughout the poem at different points. Do we think that one after another, um, Poem after poet went up to the Troad and looked round at all the details? No. So an idea that there is a single Homer with a definable voice um, running through, structuring most of the poem is important. I don't think book 10 is by him. I don't think part of book two is either. I think they're added in later, for instance. But most of what we have is the work of one pair of eyes, and that matters because instead of fussing about poems stitched together and whether there are inconsistencies here, inconsistencies there, look for the unifying vision the whole way through and explain the inconsistencies by the fact that it is being performed in performance and composed in performance. Uh, a really important point for people. Homer did not memorize. He's not an actor going on set with a, a text in his head he's straining to recover. He is actually composing as he goes along. And there are analogies for this in other great um, heroic poems composed around the world that have been now observed and looked at. A very good example is a long poem in Central Asia about the hero Manas. The singers there still do not read or write. They can't, but they compose as they are performing. But in amongst that, there is one pair of eyes, uh, and it's a good starting point for criticism. If there are inconsistencies, it's amazing there are so few, as he is, in a sense, making it up as he goes along. Of course, he's rehearsed it, 
But what actually comes out is as unusual, say, as a great jazz pianist playing jazz on the particular night you go to his club. It's not always the same performance. So how does that become a text, a stable text oh, well, that we know and read today? Yeah, look, John, you ask, of course, the really pertinent questions. The answer is it did, so we have to explain how. I rally with those, not in the majority now, who think that Homer dictated it. People say, well, why would he do that? He had no idea of a text. And then people say, rather implausibly, that a patron paid to it because it supported the aristocratic view of the world. I don't believe that for one moment. I mean, Agamemnon, this is the extraordinary thing about it. The leader of the expedition is completely inept. He's a walking disaster in book one and thereafter. It's not supporting solely aristocratic leadership. It's showing both sides of it. I think he dictated it because there was gain and profit to be had from it for his heirs, his children, probably. We know that other early Greek crafts, even the craft of writing as a scribe or doctoring, were passed down in families. And I think Homer saw the same. This marvellous poem, if it was written down, his uh, sons, the Homerids, uh, they only occur later, they may have been layabouts otherwise, for all we know, could at least live off it. You could charge people a fee for coming and learning it and they would hang on to it. That is how I explain its existence. It's a dictated copy by Homer himself, which he couldn't read through afterwards, taken down by literate scribes, possibly slaves. I like to think it might have been his daughter. We really don't know. Um, heavens, I've just thought it might have been his wife. <laughs> Who knows? But that goes back to him himself. And I come back to this point. The Odyssey later knows it. Iliad never is interrelated with the Odyssey. Let's talk about the heroes of the Iliad, Achilles, Hector. There are others, of course. You have a striking line in your new book, Homer and his Iliad, and it's this, quote, Once a hero is dead, he is gone forever. This total yeah. cutoff is essential yeah. for the power of Homer's poem, unquote. Mm. What does that mean? Ah, well, thank you. Um, it is essential. Um, you've only got one shot in life. You only have one go. Death, when it comes, it comes. All these phrases people have turned to now in an increasingly, perhaps, post-Christian age. This is there for the hero. It's deeds, action, glory, one on earth uh, in this life that matter. After that, you'll have a life as a gibbering bat-like figure down in darkness with no ability to uh, to distinguish yourself. You've got one go. Make the most of it. And that is the power of it. And also, when you lose your dearest, in Achilles' case, dear Patroclus, you don't have the consolation you'll meet him in the next life. You won't. You'll just be um, uh, a bloodless, largely unaware, um, flittering uh, item, a bit like a bat. Um, that's why the loss is so intense. It's brought out beautifully at the beginning of book 23, scenes I hope everybody will read. When you're gone, you're gone. Very powerful indeed. And it is at odds with what we can see of the religious practice of some of Homer's contemporaries. We can see in the later 8th century BC, so fascinatingly, that people are returning to these big grave mounds, burials of the past, and they're making endless dedications, libations, and so on to whatever they think are the inhabitants, surely the heroes of past legend. 
and they are assuming that these heroes still have a power. They're not just saying, uh, we want to remember you. They're assuming they can intervene or can be placated in their daily lives. But the Homeric epic and Homer himself turns its back on all of that. And there really is virtually no awareness and certainly no awareness in the central plot that a hero when dead could subsequently influence the events on Earth. Um, it's a very powerful view. It's what I share myself. When I die, that's it. I finish. Readers of the Iliad often have a favorite hero, Achilles or Hector. When I first read the Iliad, for me, it was was Hector. You have a line yeah. in Homer and his Iliad, which is this, quote, my personal hero in the Iliad is Phylus the Thessalian. <laughs> so who is, who is Phylus and why is he your personal hero? Oh, well, I'm so glad you mentioned him. The point is, just read closely, everyone will find uh, heroes in the backstories or in the lesser figures as well. Of course, Hector and Achilles and the rest of them, um, or Damid, some people, um, are very, very powerful. Phylas had a beautiful daughter, I think Polymele, who danced in honor of the goddess Artemis as a girl. And she was seen by the god Hermes, who was very struck by her, and as happens, Hermes went upstairs and he ravished her in her bedroom. Now, there is a rule in Greek life not always realized. If a god makes love to you, you are always, as a woman, pregnant. If he makes love to you twice on the same night, you have twins. Well, Hermes only did it once because the girl then had a little boy. Now, fascinatingly, it didn't in any way diminish her appeal or value for a future mortal suitor. They competed for her hand and offered gifts of big scale for her, and she married. But what was going to happen to the little boy, the half-divine little boy, the half-child of Hermes? Wonderfully, Homer tells us that her father, Phylas, the Thessalian, grandpa, looked after the little boy from childhood, and in a wonderful, wonderful one word that Homer is so often capable of, amphagapadzomenos. The whole of the first half of a line, loving him round and round. Um, this is a rare word uh, in that compound form. Loving him through and through, we would say. He brought the boy up. Well, what a wonderful thing. I'm a grandfather, and I also am Amphagopadzomenos, my marvelous grandchildren. But it's there already, for God's sake, in the 8th century BC. And this is what I really hope people will take away. We talk of the Dark Ages, as if the Dark Ages are coming to an end and sort of a sense of barbarity and complete incompetence ended in, I don't know when, 730 BC. They are dark to us because there was no written record. They aren't dark to the people who live in it. They are more than capable of grandfatherly love. They are capable of empathy, the whole Homeric story. They can enter into these amazing emotions, lost love, pity, irony. They're all there. The audience are in tears as I am when they're reading and listening it. Um, I often would say that it's probably us who now live in a dark age because we couldn't write anything like this. When I took a course on the great books in college, first semester of my freshman year, the first thing we read was the Iliad. I think it took all of September, and that's what we did. Robin, if you were starting a course in the great books, if you were constructing the syllabus, you as the professor— would you begin with the Iliad and why? Well, of course I would, immediately. <laughs> um, I would begin for all the reasons I've said. There is this 
transcending humanity, the movement from wrath to pity, uh, the irony, the beauty of the comparisons, the sense of the two sides of war, the cruelty, the chilling loss, and yet the chance for glory through the women's eyes so strongly seen, the awful consequences of defeat and sacking of the city, and this absolutely wonderful uh, aspect that the Trojans are really fellow human beings like the Greeks, very, very different to some of the other long oral heroic poems that I've read, where the enemy are always, you know, the, uh, the enemy, they're the absolute pits, they're hardly human. They're too human almost, a lesson the Greek tragedians learned. So I would, you have to begin with this. Of course, it hangs over the whole of the second part of Virgil's Aeneid. It's also crucial for Milton's Paradise Lost and so, so much else, and absolutely essential for an estimation of many of the strengths of Greek drama from which our own theatre derives. And honestly, there is nothing like it. When I sat down to write Homer and his Iliad, I thought, come on, Robin, you've loved this poem probably as longer than anybody now for over 60 years. Maybe writing about it will actually put this love to rest. It's done exactly the opposite. The closer I look every time, the more I see and the more I am amazed by the single genius and I mean single genius behind all of it except book 10. Do you have a preferred translation or edition? If our listeners want to tackle the Iliad finally, what do you recommend they do? What should they read? Well, a lot of money was spent on me and from the age of 12 and a half, I worked really hard. So I learned Homeric Greek. Unfortunately, I don't worry so much with translation. I have two verse ones and two prose ones, I suggest. The first ones, I like a recent one in 2015 uh, by Peter Green, now settled in America. Very good classicist, thoughtfully done. And I also like the earlier one by Richmond Lattimore. And I think I'm not alone among classicists in preferring these. I wouldn't myself go for Fagels. Um, and that's what I would choose. Behind them, I still uh, often applaud the nobility and the sense of stature in Alexander Pope's great translation. Of course, we can all see the weaknesses, but look at the notes and see what appealed to Pope in the poem. As a prose translation, to get a sense of what happens that isn't totally inaccurate, there are two. There is now the new Penguin classic by the very able Greek scholar Martin Hammond, that's the one, not the old, awful one by E.V. Rue. And secondly, the Oxford World Classics by Adam Verity. Um, those would be my two, but of course, uh, the four. They, except Pope, would be the first to say they're not poets, really, themselves. Um, that's Pope's advantage. He is a poet. Um, we all know the, the joke, a very pretty poem, Mr. Pope, but you cannot call it Homer. Well, it's more than pretty. That's how I begin. It's two years to learn Homeric Greek. Get a Homeric dictionary and just do it. <laughs> um, don't mess about. You, I say it always. If you can do it, you have not lived in vain. It's that good. How did you discover Homer? What's your story as a reader? Right. Well, I was a schoolboy. I was a scholar at a famous school, Eton College. Eton College, as a scholar, is very different from all the silly gossip and stories you hear about Eton written by people who were never there. We were very well taught. And I encountered it when I was 13. Uh, book six, we had to translate. Then in our own times, think of it, on top of all the other subjects, we had to do books uh, 22, wonderful, I thought, 
and 24, which uh, blew me away. You know, it does in Greek and be able to translate them. And then I went on and I specialized in Greek, Latin, ancient history, and so on. Brilliant teachers uh, took us through the Iliad simultaneously translating whilst we followed in Greek. And I knew that it was supreme. Uh, I've never lost that belief. I've read very, very widely, um, but I just never find anything that can quite stand up to it. So I started young. I was in a very um, uh, well-taught school. A lot was asked of me, and I rose to the occasion, as did some others. Uh, and now people are terrified that ooh, we can't ask people aged 20 to read more than one book. I mean, come on. Not only that, you actually want to read it. Um, I was 16. What did I love? I was long to have a girlfriend. I never did. I loved the garden. I loved horses. I loved riding. I loved hunting in England. But I loved the Iliad. I sat down. I read the whole lot. Best thing I ever did. You mentioned a moment ago that as you began to research and write your new book, Homer and his Iliad, you worried that you would fall out of love with this poem. And you say that in the preface. But what did you learn as you fell more in love with the book? In other words, what new thing do you know about Homer and the Iliad that you didn't know before you wrote this book? The subtlety of what are plainly interconnections, the way there's a little marker about something that's going to happen. There's no surprise, except in the games at the end in book 23. Homer doesn't trade in suspense. It's not a cliffhanger where you're on the edge of your seat in the cinema. Secondly, I happen to have had a very privileged role as a, a consultant on the huge Hollywood film, Oliver Stone's Alexander, and I enjoyed it, not least Oliver himself is a huge admirer of Homer. But I could see reading Homer that he in an extraordinary way has almost anticipated some of the techniques of film. One or two people have now started to write about this, the cutaway shots, the long-held close-up, uh, the sudden contrast of mood and shade and so on. Um, Homer would have been an absolutely brilliant filmmaker, I think. I hadn't seen that before. And I also read the speeches very carefully, paired speeches, one in uh, following the other, and could see how they pick up each other's points, sometimes almost in reverse. But at every turn, I found more. As I am older and I'm a grandfather, it was only in later life that I came to idealize Phylas, who loved his grandson through and through. That's something quite new. Whenever I pick it up, I notice something. I also sometimes notice I'm not 100% certain exactly what the Greek means. Don't worry, just push on. And the general picture is clear. But if you agonize over every word, you won't proceed quickly enough. One more question. The Iliad, of course, is at the fountainhead of so much literature. It is spoken to people across centuries, millennia, but is there a special case for reading it now, today in the 2020s? Does it say something to us today? Yeah, enormously so. I mean, uh, I just think of the terrible events uh, unfolding as we speak in Ukraine or indeed in Gaza. Uh, we at the moment, I'm talking about Oxford, maybe Michigan. Thank God we're relatively safe, certainly in Oxford so far. Nobody's going to come burn the college chapel down. I'm looking at it tonight. It's not going to happen. But when life is on the line and it's all or nothing and the tragedy, the poignancy of, all, uh, of, of war, the loss to the family, uh, the loss of your dearest brother in war, there's a book of interest to people. I don't follow all this interpretation. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Shea wrote a rather notable little book called Achilles in Vietnam, where uh, arguably not 
always successfully, he compares the reactions of Homer to the, uh, of Homer's Achilles to the loss of Patroclus to case histories that he knew as a doctor of American warriors who had lost their best friends in the Vietnamese War. You could, it's not peculiar to Vietnam. It's still powerfully with us. And so is the natural world, the storms and all the, uh, the upheavals on the mountains, if anything, and more so the forest fires that Homer describes. It's all there. Um, you can cut down and slim down human emotions to a whole parcel, including, in my view, shame and honour, which are much more prevalent in public life than people in a Christian age still like to, to claim. It's so immediate. It sweeps you away because it is still there beyond you. You see more in the world around you, the more you see in Homer's Iliad. And I just wanted to pass that sense on. I'm so touched and pleased that in England, where the book has been a big success, now a dozen people at least have written to me saying that they are starting to learn Homeric Greek. My word, that makes the whole effort of writing this, you sometimes wonder, what are you doing, worthwhile. Robin Lane Fox, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the Iliad by Homer. Well, thank you. I hope Homer and his Iliad may persuade some of your listeners to cut it in. The nights are going to be dark. It's going to be cold and pretty grim out there, even in America. Just get out there, learn Greek and get on with it. 2026, (laughs) the world will never look the same again. You've just listened to the Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to the Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Please send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website, heymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at heymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the Great Books Podcast.